just a warning about some of the articles we're discussing. The racial slurs and other examples of overt racism do not reflect the opinions, thoughts, or views of juveniles, Svengali's, or anyone participating in the podcast. He was a veteran. The Eagle Regiment? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other story here. Hi, I'm Amy Axelson, joined by my mom, Barb Axelson, and this is Juveniles Svengali's. Welcome to our Florida Column bonus episode. Have some fun with us and join us in our search for what happened to my mom's grandfather. Welcome to Juvenile Svengali's, where we find out what happened to Byron Wadsworth Culver, Princeton graduate, successful businessman, asylum inmate, and Juvenile Svengali. The Myron Briggs Detour to Florida. Port Orange, Florida, February 16th, 1891 from our Ponce Park correspondent. Mrs. Nellie Palmer of Eau Claire was here visiting her uncles and aunts. In company with Mrs. Atkinson, she walked to the lighthouse and climbed to the top. Mrs. P is a climber and no mistake. She's also a whistler and delighted us with her music. John Drummond Sr. caught an opossum and Mr. Hasty, the landlord, cooked it on shares. They say it was grand. But people not accustomed to such food approach the dish with caution. I think I told you in a former letter that Isidore Cook's brother, in company with Myron Briggs, were here. Sheridan Atkinson got a lot of cactus spikes in his hand, and both thumbs are tied up. The remedy is soap and sugar in a rag to draw them up. There has been a good deal of grip here of late, but I think it has gone north. Look out for it. There is a concert here this week. The two young Atkinsons will figure in it. There is a delightful breeze from the ocean, and we spend most of our time out of doors. From our Deland correspondent, A.D. Chapel of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Secretary of the Winnemesset Park Company is spending the winter at the Parcelan. It is a frequent expression by strangers stopping at this place that more fine-looking horses are seen here at land than any place these strangers have yet visited in the south, considering, of course, the proportion of population. The following probate business was before County Judge Lowry last week. The will of Arthur Rossiter was filed for probate. The will of Silas Kitchell was probated. General G.A. Buffington was granted letters of administration upon the estate of Alex R. Watson. Sarah A. Felt petitioned for order to sell real estate. S.B. Brook, guardian, required to give new bond. Reverend Davidson of the Illinois Conference has been appointed pastor of the Methodist Church at this place for the ensuing year. Mr. and Mrs. C.M. Buffington of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, registered at the Carrollton on Friday. He is the son of General Buffington and a prominent citizen of Eau Claire. He is one of the Lucia's old winter visitors and is down to bask in perpetual sunshine and spring for a while. The City Hotel, 
formerly the Campbell House, the three-story hotel building at Orange City, was sold under sale of foreclosure in front of the courthouse on Monday by Special Master W.R. Fitz. It was knocked down to Hugh H. DeYarman Jr. for $1,485.63. The foreclosure was to satisfy a mortgage given by the former proprietors Campbell and Chase to L.P. Harper of Suffolk, Virginia. June 29, 1891, Florida. The Halifax River, Spruce Creek, Watson and Briggs Plantation, the Major's Grove, an ugly mule. How Will Allen captures snakes? The Lord Mayor of Orange City en route to Eau Claire. Our trip to Orange City was a delightful one. Starting from Ponce Park on steamer Merchant City, we plowed the delightfully clear and briny waves of Spruce Creek, which is composed of tidewater. A few miles brought us to Briggs and Watson's plantation near Port Orange. There is a landing here known as Myron's Wharf. The first thing that attracted our attention was a little boy sitting on the end of the pier fishing. He had on one of Myron's old straw hats. We remember the hat well as it was the same hat he had on the Chippewa River the year previous when running rafts. Myron is generous with his old hats and makes presents of them to the poor people all around. The firm of Briggs and Watson owns at this point 200 acres of good orange land, 50 acres under trees. There is nothing in the state of Florida that will compare with their old grove. It is a five-acre grove and has some of the largest trees in the state. We were pointed out a tree by old Bill Johnson that had been set out 33 years ago. There were 10,000 oranges taken off that tree four years ago, and it is likely to have as many this year. We saw several trees just as large, some having yielded 7,000, 8,000, and one 8,500 in a good season. The firm of Briggs and Watson owns at this point 200 acres of good orange land, 50 acres under trees. There is nothing in the state of Florida that will compare with their old grove. It is a five-acre grove and has some of the largest trees in the state. We were pointed out a tree by old Bill Johnson that had been set out 33 years ago. There were 10,000 oranges taken off that tree four years ago and it is likely to have as many this year. We saw several trees just as large, some having yielded 7,000, 8,000, and one 8,500 in a good season. The firm of Briggs and Watson owns at this point 200 acres of good orange land, 50 acres under trees. There is nothing in the state of Florida that will compare with their old growth. It is a five-acre grove and has some of the largest trees in the state. We were pointed out a tree by old Bill Johnson that had been set out 33 years ago. There were 10,000 oranges taken off that tree four years ago, and it is likely to have as many this year. We saw several trees just as large, some having yielded 7,000, 8,000, and one 
8,500 in a good season. Bill Johnson is a cracker, so is his wife, but a good, honest couple as merry as the day is long. Myron always boards with them, and the evenings would be enlivened by song and dance. It was Mr. Briggs's delight to get the old lady loathing and the old man dancing, and a right good dancer old Bill made. He could cut and shuffle, heel and toe, but his favorite dance was a plantation jig he learned when he lived at Key West. Old Bill took great pains showing us over the balance of Briggs and Watson's plantation. We saw 45 acres of beautiful young trees, three and four years old, commencing to bear. But what took our eye the most was a corner near Sweetwater Creek where there were planted trees four years old and also commencing to bear. This little grove is known on the plantation as the Major's Grove. We knew all along we owned a small grove in Florida near Port Orange, but had no idea the trees were so large and handsome. But between John Barr Glen's goats up north and his little grove down south, the Major will soon be a regular buckwheater, or a farmer, or a cracker, or an old grayback, or something of that sort. He certainly felt as proud as a peacock when old Bill showed him his own growth. The Major thought Myron was joking all along when he said he had six trees set out for him. But sure enough, there they were as large as life and regular beauties. What pleased us still better, old Bill had left an orange in one of the Major's trees in hopes he would visit the grove and our eyes were gladdened indeed at the large one, warmed by the sun and kissed by the dew. It had grown and grown, especially the hide, which was half an inch thick. That it had been somewhat over-kissed by the dew and had been overwarmed a trifle too much by the bright orb of day, there could not be the slightest doubt. But it was an orange all the same, what we might call a flannel-mouthed when you bite one of them, you fancy you are inserting your teeth into a bale of flannel or blankets. But this is the case with all oranges allowed to remain too long on the trees. The Major's Grove is right alongside of a grove once the property of Bill Kelly, one of Mondovi's Kellys, but now the property of General George A. Buffington. It contains 30 acres of splendid trees, a young grove, and a promising one at that. Smith's Orange Groves Old Bill hitched up Myron's best span of mules, and the cry was, On! On to Port Orange to see the groves owned by Arthur Smith, the Eau Claire grocer, and George W. Smith, the Eau Claire crockery man, and Albert Smith, the great Washington farmer. We are not particularly stuck on Myron's off mule. The animal, it appears, is an old army mule that Myron took in trade from an old Georgia cracker that had fought under Stonewall Jackson. Whether it was that the mule never took kindly to its Yankee master that made it act so mean, 
But at all events, this fresh importation from the north was too much for old Jeff's nerves. And he let fly among the rigging to such an extent that we gave up all hopes of reaching Port Orange by land and concluded to go back to New Smyrna and take the Halifax River for it. The trip up the river is a delightful one. A stiff gale had been blowing the night before, and at the inlet the waves came in great height and fury, tossing us about in grand shape and sending the spray all over deck and passengers. In a few hours we were at McDonald's Wharf at Port Orange, and inquired right and left for William Smith, the respected father of our Messrs. Arthur, George, and Albert Smith. The old gentleman came down to the wharf in his shirt sleeves as lively as a cricket. He was delighted to see people from Wisconsin, and gave us a pressing invitation to stop over. However, we had to make Daytona that night. We promised to return at an early date. The Smiths have a grand lot of trees at this place and beautiful property. They're about to plant out about 20 acres more. The scenery around here is delightful. The Smith property overlooks the Halifax River, which at that point is a mile and a half wide. They have the very best of fishing and piles of oysters. Here is where Briggs comes once a week to get his supply of oysters for Sunday. He goes in up to his knees armed with an oyster tongue, wrenches the cluster of oysters off, and throws them in a boat. He then loads them into his mule wagon, takes them home, fills them into a barrel, shakes salt over them, and has them fresh all the week. Martin Page, Colonel Bartlett, General Buffington, used to head for Myron's Grove every Sunday to have a mess of oysters. Martin Page says, I tell you, Major, there was no scarcity there. A man could have any quantity, raw or boiled or stewed, and no one to stand over him the same as they do at a church fair to see if he got more than one oyster in his soup. And then what you did get are oysters, and no mistake, the genuine sea flour, fresh and juicy. I'll never forget the good times I had with Briggs and Old Bill the Cracker catching snakes and eating oysters all winter. Colonel Bartlett got fat. I could see him visibly swelling before my eyes. And as for the general, oh, the oysters that man has eaten. Talking about snakes puts us in mind of the greatest snake story of the age, and a real live and true snake story at that. Will Allen was out one day with his when they surrounded a tremendous rattlesnake. Joe was the first to discover his whereabouts, and when the immense rattler sounded his drum and raised its head, he gave a yell and jumped five feet in the air. Will was equal to the occasion. He happened to have an empty flour barrel in his wagon, and he threw it at the snake with such precision as to cover him nicely. He asked them to slide a cloth under the barrel, and in two hours, Mr. Snake was safely landed in Allen's drugstore, Deland. Tom Reed is the name of the snake. They had very little to do christening a rattlesnake after the greatest chairman and speaker on earth, but there's no accounting what a Delander will do anyway. The snake was captured a year ago. He is exhibited in a large case or cage in the drugstore. 
His cage has a neat wire front, and when you want him to rattle, all you have to do is poke him with a lead pencil. And if you don't jump back in a jiffy, it's none of your business. The snake is ten feet in length and is as big around as a man's wrist. It is beyond doubt the largest rattlesnake ever captured in Florida. Tom Reed is a sulky rascal that positively refuses to eat. He has not eaten anything for a year and a day, as he was captured July 27, 1890. They have tried everything to tempt his appetite, but of no avail. Spring chicken, mail on toast, frogs, squirrels, and even a rabbit, but no use. He drinks a little water, sometimes a little milk. He has 15 rattles and a button. All you have to do, as Will Allen says, is to press the button and Tom will do the rest. There was a big rattlesnake in Deland once. The man kept him two years and then he died. During the two years the snake did not eat anything. Will Allen has wonderful specimens in snake skins. One is nine feet in length. He intends to skin Tom when he dies. Martin Page has not seen this snake yet. He ought to see him before he dies, not before Page dies, but before Tom dies. Thank you for listening to our Juvenile Svengali's Florida Column bonus episode. A hypnotic green parrot. You, you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Byron Wadsworth Culver and what happened to him? As we go through looking for me, you're going to notice some of these names repeat themselves, and some of the names that had to do with a lot of the stuff in the Florida column are going to come up again later. So, just a heads up, we're going to be back next time with a regular episode of Juvenile Svengali's. We might come back to the Florida column again, because it's just so fun to listen to. Um, also, thanks again to Mark Lynn. An abduction and a possible double murder. Join us as we uncover what happened to my mom's grandfather in the bizarre world and colorful cast of characters we discover in the most unlikely of places, the Gilded Age of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Additional music by Donald Haywood Glantz and his orchestra and the orchestra of Antonio Romo and Fats Waller. Thank you for listening to Juvenile Svengali's. We hope to see you next time. A special thank you to Mark Lynn, TF. Music by Jason Shaw of Audionautics.com. Simon Sounds, Dude Awesome, and Frankie of Freesound.org. Thank you for listening to Juvenile Svengali's. Special thanks for their help and encouragement to Associate Professor Greg Koken, Head Special Collections Librarian and University Archivist at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and Jody Kiffmeyer, Archivist at the Chippewa Valley Museum in Eau Claire. And special thanks to Hillside Cemetery in Marshfield and Forest Hill Cemetery in Eau Claire. This is Amy Axelson. And I'm Barb Axelson. And this is Juvenile Svengali's. Juvenile Svengali's is written, edited, and produced by Amy Axelson. And if you want to get lost in the fascinating history of Eau Claire and the Chippewa Valley, go to cvmuseum.com.